Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. This week I would like to, first of all, apologize for some of my mispronunciations last week. Um, I was reading out of the Campagnola book, uh, some history of the bicycle, and pretty sure I mispronounced a few of the, uh, the names there. And I do know that it's pneumatic tires, not mnemonic. I am aware of the difference, um, so I apologize for that. Um, So this week, we're going to do a couple of stories. We're going to do a story of the two times that I got to work the uh, Ruta Mexico, or also known as the Tour of Mexico, or the um, Vuelta Mexico. I'm going to read a little bit more history um, out of our Campagnola book about the early pioneers and heroes of cycling. And then I'm going to finish it off with a little bit of a rant about uh, working in a bike shop. So let's move along and we'll get started with our first story, the two Rutas. So a little bit of a background of the the Tour of Mexico, the Vuelta Mexico. The first race was in 1948 and it ran from 48 to 1954. And then they did, uh, did it again in 56, 57, 60, 61, and 68. Um, and then they went on from there. They did it in 1989, uh, 93, 94, 99, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, and 15. And as far as I know, it does not exist in its uh, former um, version anymore on the uh, UCI race calendar. So, um, so the years that I got to work it uh, were in, I believe... It was 1989 and 1994. Sorry, that was not correct, not 1989. I I worked it in 94, but I also worked it in 1999. So in my notes here, I just had a few things about who won some of the races uh, of note. So in 1989, Raul Acala won. Um, he also won in 94, the first year that I worked the race. And then uh, other notable winners were in 1993, uh, Laurent Fignon uh, won the Vuelta Mexico. And 99, when I worked it, uh, Jose Luis Venegas from Colombia won. It is also of note that in 1993, when Laurent Fignon uh, won the, the, the Ruta Mexico, uh, Michael Carter from the U S was third place. Um, so it, like I said, it ended in about 2003 and was revived in 2008. Um, and it was a 21 day race for most of its time. Uh, I think when I worked it, the first year I worked it in 94, it was a 16 day race. And then after that, I believe it went down. I think the last time I worked it, it might have just been a 10-day race. So in 1994, the first year I got to work uh, the race, I was um, it was kind of the off-season. I had been working with the U.S. national team. And the this race takes place in January, so I had some time. And somehow, I don't remember exactly how I got hooked up with it, but they were looking for a mechanic for a a a gone team which was greg lamont's team and a kind of a uh, 
US Pro, it was Gone US Pro is the name of the team. And it had a mix of uh, some uh, Gone riders, which there were, I think there were only two. It was Eric Boyer and Boyer, I believe, and uh, Greg LeMond. And then uh, on the US Pro side, we had Chad Gerlach, Andy Bishop, and there were, we had two Colombians. Um, I don't really remember their names, um, kind of a language barrier there, but um, I think one of them, his last name was Robles. Uh, yeah, and they knew Chad Gerlach, I believe, um, from racing in the States or in, uh, in uh, South America. So the first day of the race, when I first arrived that night, I was introduced to um, Roger Leger, uh, was the director of the GAN team. And um, he was only there on the first day. And then uh, Otto Giacome, uh, Greg LeMond's uh, Swanier for life, kind of, um, was took over as the director for the race. And uh, in addition, uh, Otto's uh, son-in-law joined um, as a helper. Um, he had the task of, uh, the rest of us flew in, but his Otto's son-in-law, uh, had to drive from, uh, from the United States, drive into, um, Me Mexico. So he, um, he drove in a minivan with a bunch of team supplies and, uh, <laughs> he got stopped at the border and heading into Mexico. And it was, a it's kind of a big deal when you go into Mexico. They're always worried that you're going to um, bring a bunch of goods in from somewhere else and sell them. So he had a minivan full of team uh, supplies um, and they kind of stopped him at the border and they actually threw him in jail um, for, I believe, uh, one or two nights. Um, and uh, it took a while. I don't know how they finally got him out, but they got him out and he was able to make it to uh, Monterey, Mexico, which is where the race started. Um, pretty scary situation for him um but he did make it okay and no harm no harm done but a little stressful for everybody one of the other staff members i remember was uh i forget his last name but his first name was patrick and he was from uh, the southern u.s um he was a swanier um, we had worked together before with the u.s national team and he was he was a fun guy to have around he was pretty funny he knew how to have a good time um so th this was my first race with a professional team and there was no hand-holding or checking in to make sure I was working. Um, it was very different from what I had been used to with the U.S. national team. I remember taking LeMond's bike out of his bike bag in the hotel room and um, it was uh, a LeMond titanium bike. Uh, it was beautiful. I remember I wiped it down. It was in really good condition. Um, I have some photos of myself uh, wiping down his bike that are that are pretty funny maybe i'll, I'll post them on uh, the instagram page uh, if i can find that that picture so this was this was in 1994 this year that i worked the 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 ruta mexico or the vuelta um and the motorola team was here um at, at the start um with uh, they had a, a pretty pretty good team on hand they had uh, raul acala of course uh, george hencapi uh who was he was a first year pro he had uh been on the team when i was the mechanic for the u.s national team so it was kind of cool to see him on a pro team um his first year as a pro and uh and lance was there uh lance armstrong he was wearing uh the rainbow jersey which he had won uh at the end of the the previous season in 1993 in norway 
So what, what a race this was. There were so many fans at the start. Um, our caravan vehicle was provided by the race. It was a, it was a Volkswagen bus. Um, it's probably my favorite caravan vehicle of all time, except for maybe the pickup truck in uh, South Africa with uh, the two uh, bucket seats welded into the truck bed. Um, that one was kind of fun. But yeah, we had Volkswagen buses um, for the whole caravan was Volkswagen buses and they were all like brand new pretty much. So on the, on the first race day, I went to sit in the back like the mechanic does and uh, with the wheels and everything all ready to jump out when needed during the race. And, and Otto uh, said, hey, no, he said, you sit in the front with me. I was like, no problem. So away we went, 16-day uh, stage race all over Mexico in a VW bus with Otto Jacom. It's pretty amazing. Um, we talked. Uh, I don't remember what we talked about, but he was... Um, he was a very animated guy when he would talk. Uh, we had a, had a really good time. Um, after, after about eight, the first eight stages before we headed into the hilly, uh, parts of, uh, of the race, um, uh, Greg Lamont went home, um, to continue his training. Uh, he, he thanked me and I, I really was, uh, uh, pretty excited to have been able to work for him even though it was only for about 10 days but it was pretty amazing um he actually retired in december of that same year um kind of a sad day but um, i was happy to have been have gotten to watch him race and uh, work with him um uh, one mountain stage day after greg had gone home we were uh, entering the province of mexico so we had uh, we had to have flags tied to the front of the of the Volkswagen buses, and um, they kind of were over the front of the bus, and it kind of hindered the air from circulating back to the rear engine vehicle the way they're cooled. If you know anything about a Volkswagen, so they covered that kind of covered that vent a little bit, and we were going up a climb, and the the bus kind of overheated, and something blew up in the back. I don't know what it was, but it was loud. It was some kind of reservoir. Um, we had to stop and uh, cool down, let it cool down and then start up again and kind of limp our way up to the mountaintop finish. Um, took us a while. The race kind of passed us by, but it was it was pretty funny. Um, all in all, it was a pretty smooth race. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. Got to see a lot of uh, Mexico that I had never seen before. Um, some of the start and finish towns were pretty amazing. The cities. Um, I remember Morelia, uh, for example, had some pretty amazing uh, churches and the architecture was was very uh, seemed very European influenced and I also remember a town a city called Zacatecas I hope I said that right but that one was pretty amazing as well um, uh, it was fun at the at the the prize uh, money was given out at the end at the at the ceremony when the race was over and it was given out in cash uh, big envelopes of cash it was it was pretty crazy. I remember Raul Acala won the overall, uh, the individual overall, but there was a, a Colombian team, and I don't remember the name of the team, but they were they had they were just stacked. They, the stacks of uh, the envelopes with the stacks of money in them that their team was given was bigger than anybody else's. Um, I'm sure they walked away with more money than anyone, but in the end, it was a pretty fun race. It was really well organized. It was. Uh, pretty amazing. It was my first kind of uh, grand tour in like uh, North or Central America. Um, so it was a little bit different than going to Europe, but um, lots of fun. And then, 
So at this point, uh, we kind of flash forward to uh, 1999, the next time I got to work the Tour of Mexico. Completely different experience. Um, even though it was only five years later, I had um, worked for the national team a, a year after the first year of that I worked the race, and then I worked for uh, Chevrolet LA Shares for two years, took a couple years off, and then went back to work for the Saturn, Saturn cycling team. And we were going to do uh, the Ruta Mexico, um, kind of as a training race, I believe. Again, it was like in uh, around January, um, kind of late January, perhaps. Uh, so I had a ton more experience at this time, and I was—I felt like I was pretty ready. I was in the Saturn warehouse, uh, getting all the the, the spare spare wheels ready, gluing them up. And I remember I spent a couple days just uh, gluing up uh, new um, tubular tires onto uh, the race wheels. They were Continental Sprinters. Um, if you know anything about Continental Sprinter tires, uh, they're pretty hard to stretch on when you're gluing them, even if they're pre-stretched, which we did. Uh, so that was lots of fun. Um, so I had to do, uh, we had six racers for the race, one pair of wheels each, as the riders have been told just to bring their bikes without wheels since I'd be traveling to Mexico with all the wheels for racing. So they had their bikes at home from training camp. So they were just gonna travel with their frames, you know, just their bikes without the wheels. So uh, we could just use the race wheels. So six pairs of wheels plus four pair of extra, 10 pair of wheels, 20 wheels. Um, then there was uh, packing the Swanier stuff, drink mix, other stuff, uh, water bottles, uh, then I packed a spare bike, bike parts, the usual tires, components, my toolbox, work stand, all the stuff we carry. So all in all, I probably had 10 bike bags uh, filled with all this stuff. So I remember Ian Sherborne, uh, my, my good buddy there uh, from, the, from the United States Cycling Federation now at Saturn, uh, kind of running the mechanics there. Uh, dropped me off at the airport with all the bags and uh, helped me bring them into the lobby of the airport in Milwaukee. And then he said goodbye. Uh, he took off. Um, so I got up to the check-in desk uh, and the uh, airline employee informs me that there's an air embargo to Mexico. And I can only take two checked bags. Oh my gosh. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So like a good mechanic, I checked my toolbox and my personal bag. Uh called Ian and left him a message uh, to let him know that I had uh, I had to leave uh, the bike bags in the airport lobby so already this trip is very different than my first uh, uh, tour of Ruta Mexico so I you know just tool bag and my personal belongings and I'm like oh my gosh I'm gonna go to this race I don't have any wheels for the riders are just gonna show up with bikes um, uh, with no wheels to race on, kind of a stressful flight. Uh, I remember getting to the airport and uh, letting some of the riders know that I didn't have wheels for them yet, and we were going to try and work something out with the race. And we kind of all gathered, uh, and we went to um, we went to go get on our bus. And uh, there was someone there to to meet us from the organization, like there usually is with a race. Um, and uh, take us down we had to go down a couple flights of stairs to where our bus was and we walked down um to the lower level and there was um there was this really nice bus sitting there it looked like a like a bus that like a tour band would uh, a band touring in the u.s would be on super 
super cool looking bus. I'm like, wow, they really rolled out the red carpet. This is, this is cool. And the guy leading us proceeded to walk us past that bus to a kind of rickety, uh, kind of dirty, old, kind of nasty bus, uh, kind of the same size, but looked like it maybe had another uh, couple hundred thousand miles on it. And once we got on this bus, got loaded in, this bus was so slow. It took us so long to get to get to uh, the airport, not the airport, to get from the airport to the hotel. I remember some of the guys saying we were, I fell asleep for part of the drive, but some of the guys said we were only doing about 35, 40 miles an hour the whole way, kind of in the slow lane on the freeway. So we finally got there, got to the, the hotel and uh, crashed for the night. Um, so the next day, you know, I had to try and find some wheels for my guys to race on. So I met the neutral support um, guys and uh, they were really nice. They spoke, uh, the, the, the head of the, of the group there, um, I forget the name, but they, um, they, uh, he spoke really good English and he, they had some older wheels that he could borrow that he had in a warehouse. But he said, um, said, I've got some wheels you can borrow for the race, but they don't have any tires on them right now and they're tubulars. <laughs> so here we go again. So, uh, so they had, they had eight pairs of wheels for us. So I had to spend that whole night, the first night kind of before the race, um, gluing, uh, a bunch of tubulars again because they had tires for me and they had the wheels and they actually I had some glue I think with me in my toolbox so um and the the worst part about this was that the the wheels the rear hubs were I believe they are Campagnolo and we were running Shimano but it was I think back then it might have been nine speed um I think we we're running nine speed so it, I think it still worked but the um the highest gear in the back was the 13. So <laughs> the racers were not, were not stoked about that. I had to hear about that the entire week, which was, uh, I felt really bad, but there was really nothing I could do about it. So at one point, Ian, Ian decided that he would ship all of our stuff to Mexico. So I forget what service he used, but it was some kind of worldwide shipping company and he shipped what turned out to be, I believe, two or three large pallets of all of the bike uh, bags with all the equipment and everything, uh, the wheels and all the other stuff to us in, uh, I believe, in Monterey. He was going to send it there and hope that it got there in time and that I could go pick it up from uh, from the airport where it was being delivered. So um, at, at this point, the race had been going on for a couple of days and we had been dealing with the uh, the wheels that we got from the neutral support and everything was working out okay but the stuff that ian had sent had arrived and um, we had to try to go and get uh get the stuff out of customs um so at one point um during this when we were getting ready to go to try to pick up all of our equipment the race organizers set a van aside for for me and they had a couple helpers that were going to come with me and translate and get this stuff out of customs i um had uh, gotten Montezuma's revenge at some point and had some extremely dis extreme discomfort in my stomach. I, I think it was because I took a sip of some juice that had ice in it or something and kind of kind of wasn't feeling so good. So we drove all the way to the airport, back to the airport, I missed a whole day of the race, um, and uh, we're trying to get our stuff, but nobody. Um, Nobody would let us have it. They kept questioning, you know, why we needed so much equipment. Um, 
they were again they were they thought we were going to sell the stuff um and the fact that it was the beginning of the season and all the stuff was brand new didn't really uh help our case at all so um so in the end we were not allowed to to take our equipment from the airport um and kind of at that point the race had been going on for maybe about four days or so uh we just had to kind of do without it and there was you know the stuff ended up getting sent back to uh Milwaukee, Wisconsin at a, you know, it was a huge, huge bill to ship it down there and then ship it back. It was just ridiculous. Um, so never got our stuff. I remember sitting in the customs agent's office, um, which was kind of in one of the loading areas and seeing all our stuff way up high on a shelf. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's just like right there, but I can't have it. So we resigned ourselves to the fact we weren't going to uh, get it and just headed back uh, to the, the hotel where the, the riders were, um, and all the other teams that night after the race. In the end, the race really just ended up being what it was meant to be, a good training race uh, early season for the team. So, But this this version of the Ruta Meiko was, was much lower budget. Um, in place of the Volkswagen buses, we had uh, Volkswagen sedans that were probably about 15 years old. Um, the hotels weren't as nice, and the food and the race organizers uh, everything was just like a few steps lower. Um, in the end, we made it back home. Uh, no problem. Our equipment made it back home shortly after, um, that. So everything worked out. Um, had a last night we got to stay in the last couple of days in Mexico city and did a circuit race there. And the guys were, were so glad when the race was over cause they were just spinning out that 53, 13, trying to keep up on this flat kind of fast like last stage um and when it was over everyone was kind of relieved so we had good stories to tell and uh that was the story of the two rutas so in our next same segment here i'd like to uh, do a little bit of reading from my favorite book uh, camp ignola the 75 years of cycling passion i'll try to get some of my pronunciations uh, a little a little better this time but i uh, make no promises um so here we go, uh, Bicycle Mania, Races, Pioneers, and Heroes. By the end of the 1800s, the bicycle looked more or less like today's bicycles and was becoming one of the lead players in a period full of wonders on the threshold of enormous changes. The Wright brothers were trying to get an airplane to fly. Guigliamano Marconi was figuring out how to move words Move, move words from one place to another, and Jules Verne lifted his characters off this planet and transported them all the way to the moon. Businessmen and adventurers experienced the pleasures of the Orient Express from Paris to Constantinople, while the automobile was steadily becoming the most revolutionary invention of a new century, completely dedicated to movement and speed. Of course, all these novelties were restricted to the lucky few. Ordinary people, the ones making up the overwhelming majority, dreamed of expanding their horizon by way of a bicycle. In 1894, the touring club Ciclistico Italiano came into being in Italy, an association that, by way of the bicycle, a bicycle wheel being the club symbol, promoted a new geographical territorial culture at the national level. Artisans were discovering how the two-wheeled vehicle could serve their profession. A knife grinder in Padua got rich by abandoning the 
the aging donkey that had pulled his cart and using instead, even for, for trips to far places, a bicycle to which he had attached a grinding wheel. Bicycle races, including the big stage races, had proven the toughness of this machine, even when put to the harshest trials. The Tour de France for first run in 1903 and the Giro d'Italia in 1909 carried out in sunshine or pouring rain, in mud or choking dust on roads studded with holes or at least the very best uneven. They had turned out to be phenomenal testing grounds for bikes. Over periods of several consecutive days, the racers had to cover long distances that were not so much stages as journeys. These carried, they carried the necessary extra tires themselves along with bags loaded with food, changes of clothes, tools to repair bikes, bandages, and cures for fatigue that ran from wine flasks to chemical stimulants in tablet form. The cyclists of the early 20th century performed the roles of pioneers, sometimes also missionaries. They traveled across the land, visiting new places while being followed by journalists who wrote about their marvelous deeds, thus awakening the imaginations of readers who longed to experience such adventures themselves. Some of that missionary zeal was behind the creation of the Tour de France. Its racers carried around the country the idea of a bicycle as a reliable tool for traveling and for, for gaining new experiences. In the past, France had been traveled by the Compagnons de Tour de France, artisan masters who went from city to city teaching crafts to the young. Bicycles now did much the same, spreading the word about this vehicle that was itself emblematic of, mod mod of modern times. The specialized me mechanical industry and the artisans associated with it were only too happy to support this growing passion for bicycles. Even automobile makers saw the bicycle as a way to spread their name. Peugeot in France, Opel in Germany, and Fiat in Italy made bikes. The, the British Rudge and Rover, French Humber and Clement, and the American Wood Brothers had been the first in the world to adopt assembly lines, turning out a variety of products such as sewing machines and motorcycles. In Italy, Lux and Mastalant and in turn were the first to do this. But the center of the new industrial production was Milan, where Olympia, Bianchi, Prinetti, Stucchi, De Ferrera all prospered. Not too much later, the form bicycling champions themselves founded new bicycle making companies that, lust, that thus had a, a guarantee of their glorious names in Italy, Ghana, Gerbi, Maino, in France, Lapis, Christophe, and Alvion. Today's bicycle fans may give a little less weight to a bike's name, but in the past brand, but in the past brand names were an important guarantee in France, Liberator, Meteor, Louvat, Labour, in Italy, Atala, Globo, Glorio, Bianchi, Menino, Legano, Legnano, also profiting from the spreading popularity of the bicycle were the manufacturers of pneumatic tires, Woolbear, Continental Hutchinson, and Dunlop, Michelin, and Pirelli, as well as makers of other related products, such as clothing. It was a phenomenon in continuous expansion, although occasionally slowed by wars, periods of economic recession, and social changes. Italy's touring club had 
784 mem members in 1894, the year it was founded. By 1925, this number had risen to 357,000. In 1898, a census of bicycles in Italy had counted 185,000. Twelve years later, there were 600,000. While France had more than one million bicycles by the beginning of the 20th century, the bicycle was a means of transportation, a means of amusement, but also more. Armies created corps of, corps of troops riding special bicycles for use in, in postal service as first aid medics, as explorers, even as frontline soldiers. Ottavio Botecchia, the first Italian to win the Tour de France, served in World War I in Italy's bike riding Bersaglieri. The bicycle he rode had been fitted with a machine gun. So I hope you enjoyed that story. I know I did. Um, so I'd like to finish off today's uh, Bicycle Mechanics podcast with uh, a little section we're going to call just just call it the rant. And this is going to be uh, the stuff that bugs most bicycle mechanics. Um, I'm going to start it off and then uh, you can uh, you can send me an email uh, to the Bicycle Mechanics podcast at, at gmail.com and uh, let me know what your what your uh things are that bother you as a bicycle mechanic, but I'm going to kind of just get it started off here and uh, name a few of the things that over the years bug me the most. Um, so not in any particular order, but uh, we're going to go with number one here would be uh, when seemingly uh, fully capable humans um, cannot fix a flat tire themselves. Um, this one always bothered me. Uh, I guess a little later in my career, it didn't bother me as much. Um, but when I was younger, I kind of couldn't really understand how you could own this this uh, magnificent machine and not be able to uh, change out a tube uh, if you needed to. So that one always kind of bothered me. Um, and then uh, let's see, number two, uh, this is kind of a big one, probably a big one for a lot of us, um, working on dirty bikes. Um, gosh, what a, what a nightmare this can be. Um, some examples of this would be uh, a dog poop tire. Uh, sugar drink front derailleur, cobweb uh, shifter pods, spider bike, uh, cottonwood wheels. Uh, these are just some examples. Uh, you can certainly share some with me what you think bothers you the most. Um, and then my third rant is one that I am pretty aware that we're all kind of have a little bit of a problem with this. Um, engineers. Um, engineers really kind of... Uh, can really get under your skin when they bring their uh, bikes in for you to work on. They are designers and uh, they, they plan and they construct. But in a lot of our eyes as bicycle mechanics, they don't necessarily aren't the ones that uh, make things work the way they should. So when an engineer comes in, it can be super frustrating. Um, once had a friend uh, that I worked with a few times, uh, mechanic um, for teams and has his own shop, I believe in North Carolina, his name's Jim O'Brien, um, super cool guy. He had the shirts made one time, these uh, t-shirts, and he gave them out to all the team mechanics. Uh, and it said, uh, on the front of the shirt, it said, uh, do you want the guy who designed it or do you want the guy that made it work? And on the, and on the back of the shirt, it said, do you want the engineer or do you want the mechanic? And uh, it's pretty funny. I, I don't have the shirt anymore, um, but that was uh, it was pretty cool. I remember when he handed those out to everybody. We all had a good laugh and uh, wore our shirts proudly. 
So that kind of ends our show for for this time. I will see you uh, talk again in a couple of weeks. So in the meantime, uh, don't forget to uh, check us out at the Bicycle Mechanics podcast on Instagram or email me, like I said, at the Bicycle Mechanics podcast at gmail.com with any uh, questions, comments, concerns. And in the meantime, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks.